Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend and Chavruta Aaron Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachi Kitubot DAP Samachi, page 65. So we have a little bit of a strange DAP, or at least I'm an owl, with some interesting stories about this question of how much wine is a woman given? How is she given wine at all? There seems to be a machlokas between the Mishnah and a Brisa, where one seems to say a woman is given wine, one says that a woman is not given wine. There's a whole discussion based on Hana about whether or not she did drink wine with her husband, Elkanah, or did not drink wine with her husband. And so what becomes somewhat clear is, is that this issue of wine has to do with whether or not a woman is sort of accustomed uh, to having wine or she's not accustomed to having wine. And Abaye basically explains Shmuel with this. I'm doing a little bit out of the top because I'm really more interested in the real life stories that they bring from this, that if she's accustomed to having wine with her husband, then she's given two cups. But if she's not uh, in, you know, accustomed to drinking wine with her husband, uh, then uh, she's only given uh, one cup. And if she's not with her husband at all, and she's not, you know, uh, accustomed to drinking at all, then she wouldn't be given any wine at all. So there seems to be that, I don't know, somehow like women, some women drink wine and some women uh, did not drink wine. And I do find that interesting because it's not like they had today, like, you know, uh, we have, you go to the grocery store, there's a gazillion different types of drinks, soda, juices, all these different flavors. Water and wine was pretty much what you drank. <laughs> so it's interesting that there definitely were women who did not drink. Um, and, you know, uh, some of it is, again, this is clearly a dot where we sort of see sort of the male perspective on this. Um, and I, I do want to share at least this brisa, and they give their reasoning why, why right? Tana, it's taught in a brisa. One cup of wine is good for a woman. Two is a disgrace because it means she'll start to become drunk. Three means she'll become uh, lustful. And so the Mepharshim explained it's that she'll actually, uh, re- you know, request uh, uh, request sex. Now, this is very, very vulgar of the, the Gemara. I actually was shocked by the vulgarity here. That if she drinks four cups of wine, she'll be so drunk, she'll request to even have sex with a donkey in the marketplace, right? Because she's not particular about who she would be with. I, I mean, Anne, do you agree with me? It was like strikingly vulgar to me. <laughs> Right. So I wasn't sure here. uh, There's no question that to me, there's no question that it's kind of shocking and disturbing in its vulgarity. I agree with you. My question is, is this like an overstatement, exaggeration, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, where we're, you know, old buddy, old pal telling a a ridiculous, you know, um, you know, what would happen in the extravagance of her having four cups of wine, right, which is also the number of cups of wine that one has at the Pesach Seder, right? So, or is it like, or are they taking it seriously that this is really inappropriate behavior on her part? I kind of felt that this was like so extreme that maybe they didn't mean it quite as seriously as all that. I agree so- with you. I think it is, but I was just shocked at how vulgarly they describe yes. it. You know, it's like the punchline yes. to a bad, dirty joke, you know? Right. That, and that- we think it's polite company. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But I, I think you the Gemara speaks in a way that's very frank about sexual matters, you know, that doesn't hide it, but it's definitely written from a male perspective, you know. Um, 
look, they also make a lot of comments about how lustful men can be as well. So I, I do think, you know, I just can't quote off the top of my head something vulgar they say about men. But those do exist. You well. haven't like, retained? You don't have a list, a running list of the vulgarity? I don't have, I don't retain. Although I did meet somebody, uh, this was years ago, it, 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 who kept a list of like all of these types of statements that the Gemara makes. Because he just thought they were like so crazy sometimes. But anyhow, that's sufficient to know that they're here. Sufficient yeah. to know that they're in here. Exactly. Right. Okay, All right. So now let's get to the story. So there's one story actually just before this statement, which is about a woman who requests wine actually for pudding, some type of food that she made. Um, you know, I thought of like, well, that wine sorbet you could buy. OK, but the story that I wanted to get to is, is this one. Um, and it says the following, Homa de Batehu da Baye. So Abai's wife, Homa, right? She comes before Rabba after Abai dies. Okay. And she says to him, right? Make sure that I get my food from the estate. Right. And so what does he do? He, Rabba makes sure she gets the, you know, what she needs. And then she says, she says, you make sure I also get wine. I didn't get any wine. And so he says, Yadana Bay he goes, I know Nachmani, which is sometimes a nickname for Abaye, and he didn't drink wine. So he's basically saying, I didn't give you wine or make sure the estate gave you wine, because as far as I know, you were in a household where the man of the house didn't drink wine. Amrale, she says to him, And so he says, by my master's life, right, like very extreme language, this isn't true. He would give me wine to drink in cups, shufrize, as large as this, okay? And then, so she basically then, like, shows her with her hands, like, you know, the way we would, like, make a measurement with our hands or something. But how do you yay big. We would right. say yay big. <laughs> right, yay big, exactly. So when she was showing him the size of the cups, right, her arm became uncovered. And a light had shined in the courtroom. In other words, she was of exquisite beauty. And he basically saw a part of her body that he normally would not have seen. And it was beautiful. Okay. Now, I find this story to be interesting because they say arms. And I really wonder if arms is a little bit of euphemism for something else here. But okay. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think when you're very I, I covered up. I just think it's like, it's interesting. It's something definitely in the upper part of her body. Okay. Come, Rava. Rava gets up, right? And he basically requests, he's married to Rav Chisa's daughter. And he basically was aroused by this encounter with her. And he basically requests, he goes home to his wife and he's like, okay, let's go into the bedroom. So Rav Chisa's daughter, right? He, she knows this is out of character for him, right? And he had just come home from work. And she says, Man have hadina bevedine. She says, who is in the Beitin today? Now, I sort of love this story in the sense of like, I can picture the movie version of this in my head, right? Like this is like <laughs> really? the scene Very out of like a sitcom or a movie. Like you could see how this happens, right? And also the intuition that she has, like her husband's really not behaving the way that he normally behaves. Amarla, and he says to her very truthfully, which I also find to be fascinating, he says, you know, Huma came to my, my, you know, basically my Chavrusa's 
you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, he says, my friend Abaye's, you know, wife comes, okay? Right? And so she says, Napka Batre, she goes, Rava's wife, right, who's Rav Chisa's daughter, she doesn't get a name, goes after Choma, right? And she hits her with the lock of a chest until she basically drives her out of Machoza. Now, again, I, I think there's something extreme here, but she does something to her to basically make her leave. Now, I find this to be fascinating because she's a widow. And we know that in the Torah, we are told numerous times to take care of the yatom of the orphan and to take care of the widow. This is not really taking care of the widow. And I also think this Gemara plays up on sort of like, you know, a very negative perception that people have of widows, which is sort of like, you know, because they're single, they're going to go after somebody else's husband, you know? But this is not just any old widow. Yes, but there's something about this story that's a little distasteful. Like it plays up on the Wait, but just finish it off so that everybody else... Amrala, right? And so what does she say to her? Right, you have killed three men because apparently Abaye was her third husband. But and now you're going to kill another, my husband Rava. Right now, again, the logic of this doesn't really make sense because really the idea would be what she was worried is that Rava would want to go and marry her or leave her or something. But this invokes some type of like very you know blind jealousy. So. This story bothers me on on so many levels because I think it plays into first of all the way that a widow is treated it's it's a it's against the Doraisa. Um, also, this idea that like Rava so couldn't control himself. I mean, everything about this story I could pick apart, and also it plays up in this very negative thing about you know sort of this cat fight between two women and two women sort of really treating each other terribly, and she sort of. A little bit. I don't know if she's if you could if it's reading into it too much, but I almost wonder if she's saying that like Choma did this on purpose when she spoke to Rava, like sort of revealed her beauty to him, you know, and, and you know made him a little crazy afterwards. I don't know. I I I I'd be curious to hear some of your impressions of this story, Anne. I mean, I think that that might well be Choma's take. The Gemara doesn't present it that way, right? The Gemara presents it as well. It's it's was- Rava's wife's take, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. I said the wrong name. Correct. Yeah, yeah, I meant yeah. I meant the daughter of Rav Chissa, right? Meaning Choma in the Gemara, the way the Gemara presents her is an innocent, right? She's simply asking for wine because she was always accustomed to drink wine, even when Abai himself was not. And, you know, yay big. And it happens to be that as she moves her, her robe or her tunic or whatever also moved. And the, the Gemara presents that as, you know, the pinnacle of innocence. Whether it was or not, maybe not. But it, there's no whiff of it being inappropriate on her part. And the fact is, Rava's behavior is not inappropriate either. I mean, he comes home to his wife. It's just that he's out of character, which makes his wife suspicious over what's going on in the baiting that would that would make Rava, you know, function a little differently here. Right. And, and from a sexuality point of view, like, I don't know, people can be triggered by things that they see. And like, I agree with you, Anne. I think that's an important point. Like, he doesn't act on it with Homa. He acts on it where he should act on it, like with his wife. So I, I there's, you know, I, I like Rava to me doesn't actually do anything wrong here. And, and I think that I, I think, think what you said he does anything wrong here. Right. And the fact that what you said before, like he answers her question directly. There's no beating around the bush. Right. Like, you know, Homa Abai's widow was in court, you know, very 
very um nonchalant not nonchalantly matter of factly right right and honestly right and and so then when when the daughter of Rav Chisda when Rav's wife you know doesn't like this so I don't know if she's making you know if she's worrying over something that is not a worry or if she maybe I kind of get the feeling that she never really liked Choma right because this line of like you already killed three men prematurely I don't know enough here right but like whatever I feel like that's that's part of the story that they these men have been you know B'nai Plugta for a very long time they learned together for a very long time the wives clearly knew each other before this day right and I find that piece to be like uh you know to me that's also interesting right like it's clear that there's no there's no uh uh, there's no love between them, basically. Uh, now, just one thing I want to say. His real name is, uh, you know, where it's called him Nachmani. This is just an interesting thing about Abaye. Uh, his father was Khalil, who was the brother of Rabba Bar Nachmani, okay? Uh, who's basically, you know, Rabba, who we talked about, right? Who, who's the teacher from Padita. And his real name is Nachmani after his grandfather, his father dies at a young age and he's raised by Rabba. So some people say that sort of the, the word Abaye is supposed to mean like little father Abaye, you know, like Abala or something like that. So it's sort of like not to confuse him with the grandfather. That's what some people say. So really Abaye's real name is Nachmani. So it's also interesting to see sort of his real name used and not Abaye used. I, I, I just thought that part of the story was also interesting as well. Okay, so that that's one piece of the stories here. And then they go on to uh, uh, to some other stories. The wife of, of, of Rabbi Yosef, the son of Rabba, comes to Rabbi Nachemya, who also says that I need wine, and he agrees to give her wine. And then uh, they have the wife of Rabbi Yosef, the son of Rabbi Menashe of Deville, comes before Rabbi Yosef and also says, uh, I, I need wine, and also I need silk garments. So I, I think what's, what, what all these stories sort of have, uh, and even that one with the pudding is, is that, again, we see that these things were sort of, uh, they were deliberated in court because what would happen to these widows is it was like the estate had to give them uh, their food and maybe it was not so clear. Maybe the estate was not, the heirs may have not always been so forthcoming in giving the widow what they were actually entitled to. So just pay attention to that theme that's on the top as well. But, uh, you know, I don't have anything more to say about this odd story between Rabba, Baye, Choma, and their, you know, and and Ravchisa's daughter. It's it's a strange story, I think, with some, you know, not such flattering themes in it. I think one of the things that comes out of all of these stories is that with the whole request for wine, is that there's a certain measure of, you know, care for the widow in the manner to which she had been accustomed in the lifetime of her husband. But so, with the Gemara being very uncomfortable with the notion of women drinking wine, there's something about it they don't totally like. Um. All right. I mean, I think that it's a discussion Please, each that time. That if you if you drink four cups, you want to be with a donkey. I mean, no, no, I understand. <laughs> I understand. But in these cases, meaning like the the concern is they there's also like a give it. it's like they listen. It it's also expensive. You know, yeah. it has to come out of the estate. Meaning, yes, maybe the issue is inebriated women, but maybe also the issue is you know protecting the estate from you know, extravagance. Right. I, I don't know. I, I yeah, think that I, there's... I, I, I hear that. I hear that. All right. There's so a lot more Alice, to be said. You know, weird stuff about women. 
Okay, you so the Gemara goes on. <laughs> the Gemara goes on to to talk about more of these different kinds of things that that were supposed to be provided for the woman from the estate, right? So, for example, This is from the Mishnah, right? That you read the other day. So that he has to give her a bed. It has to be a soft mat. And there should be a hard mat. I mean, that's all from the Mishnah. Um, why does he have to give her a soft mat and a hard mat if she has a bed, right? This is a good question. So what happens? Um, Rav Papa explains that there's a, there's a time, there's a place, I guess, where the practice was to fill the, the beds with ropes. Meaning, I guess that's it's. Um, I'm picturing like the way, you know, there's like a hammock that's not a hammock that's like an like an arch between trees, but it's hanging so that it's flat. But you're still on ropes, and then you kind of put your bedding on top of that. And I imagine that that is not the most comfortable bed when you're not just you know lounging in the afternoon type of thing. So that seems to be the concern, right? If it's a bed of ropes, and then the ropes are, you know, she's older. That's the point, right? Like at her age, this is not comfortable for her. So give her a mattress, give her something that's harder or 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 softer, right? For that matter, for her to lie on. Um, and the Gemara goes on to say, you don't give her a pillow or a cushion, right? Like why? And then the question is, but like there's all this like back and forth over whether you're going to give any one of these things that the Mishnah had discussed whether she should get, meaning that she should get. And the question is asked, and here, exactly, if it's not her usual manner, meaning, again, this is my, I guess, you know, predilection on the daft to say the the goal here in fulfilling all of these requests or the 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 line items from the Mishnah is to make sure that she's provided for in the way to which she had become accustomed. And if she was the kind of person who didn't sleep with a pillow, I'm, you know, that's my formulation then then they wouldn't have given her a pillow right and the Gemara says no we need to give her a pillow why i mean if it was his manner to use a pillow and not her manner then still maybe we would end up giving her a pillow so what happens so what happens the first tanakama the first opinion of the mission says that the husband would say to her when i leave you i'm going to take my bedding with me and when I come back, I'll bring it back, right? So then she's never using the same bedding, and then you don't have to worry, are you providing for her in the manner to which he had been accustomed? And then, you know, that's that ends up being the discussion, really, right? Does she need the bedding as he had it? But when he's left, if if she's lost her bedding, something's happened to it, she's going to lie on the ground, that's not considered appropriate, make sure she's got cushions. The Gemara is really trying to figure out why is the Mishnah saying that this is even, you know, on the list to begin with. Um, and it goes on to talk about we've talked we've talked about this already a bit. You know the question that she must that he has to provide a certain amount of clothing for her um, that she should be mechubad that she should be I guess dressed with dignity right and and there's some concerns over you know on the one hand not giving her something that's too worn out but on the other hand that doesn't mean that she's necessarily entitled to you know the the highest fashion of every season. Um, I want to close with the end of the parak, in part because it is, in fact, the end of the parak. But the, the Gemara comes back at the end of this daf. It's not the end of the daf. It's the end of the, it's the end of the parak that is on this daf, right? We'll continue with the daf when we start the new parak tomorrow um, with a nursing woman. And because, right, this is now a different, a little bit of a different 
circumstance because there's also a requirement to provide for the ch- for a young child, right? So if he's supposed to be sustaining the young children and he's also supposed to be st- sustaining the mother, but also she's nursing, so she's sustaining the young children, it becomes a little bit more complicated. So the question is until when? Meaning how old do we consider this young child? Ad kama, ad ben sheish. So the Gemara says until the age of six, uh, asi, because that's what Rav Asi said. The Amar Asi katan ben sheish imo. The six-year-old will go out with his mother's eruv. Meaning, let's say the mother had made an eruv. Let's think back to Masachet Eruvin, right? She's provi- she's set up an eruv on one side of the city, and then he's going to be included in her eruv rather than, let's say, in the case of divorce, the side the eruv of his father or even if they're still married, but the mother set up one Erev and the father set up another Erev, the young child is included in um, the Erev of the mother. For the record, I did not remember this from Masachet Erevin either. I mean, maybe some of you have, but I do not, or did not. Mimai, um, so the Gemara says, well, where, did, where do we get this idea? Right? How do we know? So if she's nursing, then she doesn't have to provide as much of the earnings that she usually would put towards the household, she's not expected to give that same sum because she's busy nursing, right? But at the same time, she's going to get more mizonot from the from the husband. My tama, why? So the Gemara says it's not because of the baby, but because she is considered ill, right? Meaning the person who is nursing is considered to be not fully well and therefore needing more sustenance. I might have thought that, you know, really what the husband is doing is providing both for the child and for the mother, so it amounts to more. But the the Gemara here is pretty careful to say it's really providing the mizonot for the And the Gemara goes on, So why doesn't it say she's sick? Meaning, why say that she's nursing? Just say she's sick and, and let that include nursing. Why does it specify nursing? So maybe we want to understand that, you know, as I've just suggested um, before, that the the default for women who are nursing is that they're also considered cholot, um, technically cholot. And there will be implications for things like fasting, right? Itamar Amar Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, Mosifin la'yayin, shayayin yafel chalav. So rather, what's, what should happen is that, you know, in the case where the woman is, you know, what happens when you have a nursing woman is considered ill, the husband has to increase the mizonot, and all the more so if she's actually ill. And then what happens? Does he have to provide for the young child? At the end of the day, the Gemara concludes that Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, don't even, don't even go there. Worry more about this nursing woman. Give her wine. Because Why? I thought you would love this line as a closure for our parak that the wine is good for the milk. Um, yeah, meaning I think medically we don't think that nowadays, right? Um, and and it's an interesting. Some people, there's always that old wives' tale that like beer is good for nursing moms. Oh, I can talk about that with with personal experience that it was actually beneficial. Same. But I think but... it took the edge off of the beginning. But Oh know. no, 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 no. That wasn't the issue for me. But 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 that's not what I mean. Meaning, first of all, the beer and the you know, malt beer is very different from wine. The point being that the what I like about Rabbi Yoshua and Levy here is that he says it so definitively, right? Like make sure that you're providing that nursing woman with wine. Now keep in mind that earlier on the duff, 
as you read so eloquently, right? There's all kinds of great concerns of what about somebody would drink too, a woman would drink too much wine. And yet here we close saying, in fact, wine is dafka good for the nursing mother. Right, right, right. Yeah. All right. I think we just finished the fifth parak. <laughs> That's our daft discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this daft. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.